Okay, Second Peter. Second Peter one. Second uh, Peter one one. For the second week or so, maybe the third week. If you're uh, if you're there, look at uh, verse twelve. We've talked about this in the introduction to Second Peter. Notice what Peter says. Therefore, and so it's this is as a result of what he's just said. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to able at any time to recall these things. So Peter sees himself uh, as he, uh, the Lord has shown him he's about to depart this world. Uh, and Peter sees his ministry now as not so much a ministry of teaching new things to these people that he is writing this letter to, but reminding them of what he's already taught them, what they already know. And uh, nothing really new. And so I say that to say, as I was studying this week, I kind of went into some things that we already know, that many of us know. And so we'll be... being reminded of some of the foundational things of our faith uh, as we walk through still these first two verses. So let's read the first couple of verses together and uh, go forward. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So, uh, Peter is, this is just a typical introduction to the books, but they're so, to these epistles so often, but they're so full of nuggets if we stop and spend time with them. He's talking, he's writing this letter, notice, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. So he's writing to Christians, and as he's writing to them, he's, he's a slave and an apostle or a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and yet the youngest Christian here has the same faith that the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ had. He says, to those who have obtained a faith equal on equal standing with ours. Uh, and uh, the question here then, as we began looking at this, uh, how, do we, how do we become a Christian? How does someone become a Christian? On one hand, we believe. Uh, we must place our faith. We must trust in Christ and Christ alone. That's what a believer is. Uh, that's what a Christian is, a believer, a follower of Christ, one who has faith. But on the other hand, notice we have obtained a faith. We have received a faith. 
So on the one hand, we are believing, but it's also this faith that we have is something that God has given us. It's something that comes from someone apart from our own efforts. Uh, it's received by God's will. Our faith has been received by uh, God's uh, allotment. God is a gift from God. And so the, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, we've received it. It's come to us as a free gift. Uh, the hearer's faith who are going to hear this letter read in their congregation, uh, our faith is, again, the same as the apostles had. Uh, and it's come to us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Probably one of the clearest passages on the deity of Christ. He is our God and Savior, not the, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So uh, that's how he introduces this letter. Uh, and it comes to us by the righteousness of of Jesus, by the righteousness of Christ, this faith that we have received. Uh, now, there's two ways we could look at the righteousness of Christ or the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ here. One, it could be that because of God's righteous character, of the righteous character of God, because of that righteous character, he's been pleased to give us faith. He has chosen by his will, decided to give us faith. The same kind of faith he, he, he's given to all people, all who believe that faith that comes from him, uh, uh, he's given it to others. And it's the same faith that Peter had, that Paul had, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. King David had that faith. It could be that this is referring to because of God's righteousness, he gave the gift of faith to all kinds of people. So in one sense, it's God's complete impartiality, the impartiality that ensures men and women have faith that ensures Jews and Gentiles have faith, that ensures those in the first century and those in the 21st century are, are receiving uh, faith. This same call from God. And in fact, the next verse, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, is, could be an extension of that impartiality in that grace was the normal greeting, the hello for the Gentiles, for Greeks. And peace was the normal greeting for Jews. And so grace and peace, there's a sense in which he's continuing with that sense that God is including everybody in this blessing, in this uh, all kinds of people in this greeting, and Peter is uh, laying that out for us. Uh,
We could. I mean, in the sense, yes. The, the, Jew, the Shalom, of course, would be the Hebrew, but the Jews are pretty much gone over to Greek, and so it's peace. I mean, that's English, right? It's a Greek word. But uh, the walls have been broken down between whatever division that culture, whatever division mankind puts on the people, the Lord Jesus has come and he has brought peace. He's broken down the walls of division. Ephesians chapter 2. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, he's writing to the Ephesians who are Gentiles. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of his hostility. Uh, so it could be that's the righteousness. The righteousness, the righteous character of uh, God, in, of Jesus, um, which uh, motivated him to offer this faith to all kinds of people. Or... It could be, as Paul looks at the righteousness of Christ, uh, that is imputed to us, that is put into our account those of us who believe. Either way, we end up in the same place. The faith that we have was received, and it is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're saved according to the word of God alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. There's the five solas, the five onlys. It's the word of God, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and God is the one who is glorified in salvation. Uh, and so, in relation to our faith and righteousness, how do they play together? Well, faith is a personal trust in God, and righteousness that originates with God comes to us through Christ, through the Lord Jesus. Um, so Peter, uh, his readers, and all believers since, he says, uh, are related. We're all related. We share faith. Uh, it's writing to those who are by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus. We've received this faith and we're on equal standing before God. Uh, and so the New Testament tells us how that happens. How God is and man are brought together. How is it that we who are born alienated from God are uh, brought into a relationship with Christ and uses certain words. I used a word earlier. Some of you would know, some of you may not, but this imputed righteousness. What's the, what's the imputed righteousness? The imputation of Christ uh, put in our account. Uh, the, there's these doctrines of salvation not just the doctrine of salvation, but the multiple doctrines of salvation uh, that, uh, are, that explains how it is that we come together 
come to God in Christ. And it uses these certain words. I'm going to just talk about a couple of them. They're important words. Easy to understand. Relatively easy to understand. Uh, but um, they have to be explained. We have to study them. We have to think about them. They're distinctive, but they're all part of what salvation is. We need to know them. We need to know what they mean so we can better understand uh, the gospel and better understand ourselves and better understand the Christian life. Let me just mention a couple. Justification. Who can define justification? We have any catechism teachers who know if the children were here, they would recite it for us. Okay, just as if I'd never sinned. Uh, it's a word out of the law courts where uh, the judge declares us acquitted. Uh, it's a declaration. Uh, here's the catechism as Bruce gave us. God regarding sinners as if they'd never sinned and granting them righteousness. So we're justified when we're converted to Christ. And we're acquitted before God. He treats us as if, uh, or he, he declares that we are acquitted. A second one I had that I, propitiation. Fancy word, some of these are, but here's what, it's, it's from the temple sacrifices of the Old Testament, right? Uh, it's turning God's wrath away from us uh, by the sprinkled blood of Christ. We could read Hebrews chapter 9 and see that we're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Uh, Christ is the ultimate and the once and for all final sacrifice. And so propitiation is part of our salvation in that the blood of Christ covers our sins. Uh, so the question is, from what or from who are we saved? Okay, we're saved from our sins, yes, but we're ultimately saved from God and his wrath against us, against our sin. And so in propitiation... The idea is that God's wrath, a holy and a righteous God who must deal with sin, his wrath is turned away from our sin, and he doesn't count it against us. Yes, James. I don't think so. I don't think so. The mode of baptism, how do they get it? Uh, I would say send Corey an email and ask him where the sprinkling of baptism came from. But it came very, very early. You know, uh, much uh, we, 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 we think the Bible says immersion. Clearly, it seems to say immersion. But it came into the church very early, into the Orthodox church. I don't know. Okay, uh, another word, one more word that we'll talk about before we talk about imputation, redemption. Redemption is a, a beautiful word about our salvation. 
Redemption is the language from the slave market. Uh, the propitiation comes from the Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, Justification comes out of the law courts where the judge de- makes a declaration, a verdict. Redemption comes from the slave markets of the day in the Roman Empire. Uh, we're, born, we're all born slaves to sin, right? We're born slaves. And so uh, one word that is, is uh, translated in our English Bibles redemption or redeemed or ransomed it it's the picture that we're in this market there was a market it would be like the the best i can the best the way i think about the slave market in the roman empire which was essentially half of the half of the empire at, at times many many slaves for various reasons. Don't think of slavery, American-type slavery or English slavery. Think of uh, not one race. It's all people could become slaves in the Roman Empire. And so there was this market. What the, what the slave, you would be sl- enslaved for various reasons, prisoners of war. Uh, you go into debt. You, can't file, you couldn't file bankruptcy in the Roman Empire. You had to work off your debt as a slave. And so there would be a market where these people who were slaves would be bought for, would be bought so they could work off their debt. Um, And so the first picture is you're you're purchased in the market. The people, the the, uh, uh, businessmen and the uh, 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 state owners would go into the market and they would purchase a slave by paying the ransom price. And of course, Jesus paid our ransom with his own blood. And when he did, he bought us in the market. And we become slaves of Christ. Uh, You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price, therefore don't fall into the uh, ways of the world. Um, Do not become slaves of men. You've been purchased by Christ. The second word is you're purchased out of the market. It's an idea of, you have the same picture of a market. You've been bought, but you've been bought out of the market. Uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We've been purchased by Christ, by his death, resurrection, and ascension. uh, And uh, he has redeemed us from the curse in that, uh, he became a curse for us. That's Galatians 3. We escape being bought out of the slave market of sin. We escape the consequences of sin. The ultimate consequences of sin. There may be temporal. There may be consequences here. But eternally we were bought out of the market. And there are uh, the consequences of sin are uh, born away. The third is we're bought to be possessed, owned by God. When we become Christians, we become God's precious possession. Uh, Titus 2.14, who gave himself, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So he redeemed us out of this market but he didn't just leave us on our own. He redeemed us to be his possession. Uh, 
peculiar people if you're in the old King James language. We're a peculiar people, but it's we peculiar in that we're owned by God. And then the last one, we're bought out of the market in the same way. We're redeemed out of the slave market. No longer slaves to sin, but it's looking to that final redemption. Uh, the redemption of our bodies, Paul talks about in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit of God who sealed us for the day of redemption. So we're purchased out of the slave market. We're redeemed from the consequences of our sin, never to go back into the slave market because he who began a work in you will complete that work at the end. And so we're redeemed, looking forward to the day of redemption. Those are just uh, some of the doctrines of salvation. There's more than that. But this imputation... Uh, you keep your finger here, or if you have a couple of uh, ribbons in your Bible, maybe. 2 Corinthians 5. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. As we think about this idea of imputation, it's a counting word that the imputation of righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, Let's start reading about verse 14. I'm going to read to the end. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, We're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here, the doctrine of salvation is reconciliation. You see that word used about four, maybe even five times here. Uh, He says, we implore you in verse 20, be reconciled to God. Why does he implore us to be reconciled? Because we're alienated. We're alienated from God. By nature, 
and we experience that alienation from God uh, socially, uh, uh, personally, materially. Uh, and so we live alienated from God as from our conception, really, from our birth, as we live our life apart from Christ. And uh, all of that, we feel all of these alienation relationships Wise because of the ultimate alienation that we experience, and that's the alienation from God. Uh, God is holy. Uh, he's other than we are, completely different from us. Because of our sins, we're separated from Him. And there's this great gulf fixed. Uh, you see uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. There's a great gulf fixed. You may have seen the pictures of, of people, you know, God here and somebody on a mountain over here, and there's this huge valley that is un, we can't get across. We're alienated from God. This great gulf is fixed, and there's no way for us to get there unless God has made a way. And that way is this reconciliation. There's a means of reconciliation. Uh, and, and look at verse 12. Here's some characteristics that Paul lays out here of what it, characteristics of those who are alienated from God. We are not commending ourselves to you again, Paul says. When we were alienated from God, we were constantly commending ourselves to God and to people. I'm not such a bad person. Um, we, uh, 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 me and God are good. It, we're tight. We're 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 good. Me and God are just fine. Uh, not as bad as so and so, or I haven't done what my neighbor's done. Uh, all kinds of attempts to save face before that's just a characteristic of someone who's alienated from God. Um, Verse 15 gives another characteristic. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Can you picture your life before salvation? Some of you can. Some of you were saved so young you have a hard time even imagining what it was like. But before you were saved, before your salvation, you were living, what does he say? For yourself. Life was all about you. The universe was all about you. The world was all about you. You didn't say that, but that's what it was about. Uh, so those who are alienated no longer live their life according to a personal agenda. Now, Philippians 2.4, I'm thankful to Paul for this. He says, let, us, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He acknowledges the fact that you and I cannot live without being concerned about ourselves. But a Christian will not be concerned only about his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We no longer live our own personal agenda. We, we live, of course, we're going to take care of ourselves as best we can, but now we have a heart for other people. God has given us a new heart. 
And so we look out for other people. Why do we, why do we go through this long prayer list? Who cares? Why do we care? Because God has put it in our heart to care for people. Some of these people we don't even know. But we know about them, and we know they're people, and we know some of them are Christian people, and the Lord has put that into our hearts. And, and Christians look not only for themselves, but for others. The alienated person lives for themselves. I don't mean that someone who is not a Christian can, can do zero good deeds. But living in a per, with a personal agenda in mind. Verse 16, a third one, a third characteristic of alienation from now on. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Worldly view of Jesus, an inaccurate view of who Christ is. View Christ not as Savior and, and, and Master and Lord, But a good moral teacher, or you know, a religious guru, or something like that—I don't know—many uh, other things other than the Lord of Life. And this is the nature of man: we're born slaves. We're fixed on ourselves. We're alienated from God. We're alienated from each other. And so the gospel calls us to be reconciled to God, and then we can be reconciled to one another. Uh, Verse 21 is God's provision for that reconciliation, the means by which we can be reconciled to God. Well, look at verse 19 first. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Forgiveness of sin uh, is a result of being reconciled. But verse 21 is the means. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Not many in that group. Is there? <laughs> yeah, only one. He made him who knew no sin or he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that, here's your purpose, in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So, God doesn't count our sins against us if we have faith, right? He's not count these that are reconciled to Him. Um, their sins are not counted. God doesn't count our sins as if... He's not saying He doesn't add up... He's not saying, Paul's not saying it's no big deal. God just doesn't count your sins against you. That's no big deal. That's not what he's saying. He's saying uh, he, uh, they're not counted against us. In fact, he says, I'll remember them no more if we're reconciled to God. Does that mean our God is a forgetful God? No, he doesn't remember them against us anymore. So, God can't ignore sin. He can't just 
look the other way. He can't ignore our sin. He has to deal with our sin. And so the question is, if you've sinned, if I've sinned, and he doesn't count the sins against me, but he has to deal with my sins, who does he count them against? Okay, Christ. He made him who knew no sin, sin. Or he made him, I can't get the ESV in the correct order. They've changed the order from another version I used to use. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He didn't make him a sinner. He made him sin. He bore my sin, our sin, uh, uh, on the cross. And so we have the picture of redemption. Here, the slave had to be redeemed. I'm a slave to sin. I had to be redeemed. The price was paid on the cross. Uh, We have the picture of justification. He made him who knew no sin, sin, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. And so God can now say, acquitted. Just as if. He doesn't say, God doesn't say, I didn't sin. But he deals with me just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified before God. It's also propitiation. On the Day of Atonement, there were two goats. One came into the, one was brought into the temple, into the tabernacle, and was killed, and his blood was uh, was uh, put on the mercy seat to cover. The other goat, the priest put his hands on the head of the goat symbolically placing the sins of the people on the goat and sent him out into the wilderness never to return. The scapegoat. That's the picture of propitiation. One goat slain and his blood is put on the altar. The other goat is driven out into the wilderness. The one who symbolically bore the sins of the people. So when Christ is on the cross, He's the sin bearer. Out into the wilderness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As He bore our sin. And all this points to the fact that God did not count our sin against us if we're in Christ, if we're believers. He counted it to the record of Jesus. Jesus was not a sinner. Couldn't save us if He was. But He bore our sin, the penalty for our sin on the cross. The wages of sin is death. He died on the cross for everyone who would ever believe. And the call to reconciliation is this great exchange whereby our sin is imputed, it's counted to Christ. And His righteousness is then counted to us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And now God can acquit us because Christ's righteousness has been put into our account. We're not righteous, but we're clothed in the robe of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ.
Well, that's the essence of the gospel. You know, no, no other religion has grace. Right? Uh, any idea that, I don't know if you hear this, you don't hear it much anymore, but uh, uh, all religions are fundamentally the same. They're just different on these peripheral things. That's either ignorance or blindness to what reality is. Islam doesn't have a cross. Hinduism has no sacrifice. Buddhism, which is not even a religion, it's really godless, has these four, uh, four, uh, four noble truths about suffering. Buddhism born out of the suffering of the people, so they're a solution. These four truths about suffering, suffering exists, there's a cause for it, there's an end to it, and there's a, tr- a path that leads to the end of suffering. And then there's eight steps to in suffering, uh, you know, you, you, right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right, do all these things. And suffering will end. Ultimately and finally when you're absorbed into the universe or whatever it is, however it is that they talk that way. And, 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 you, and, and you might say, Okay, fine, but how do I do that? How do I think rightly? How do I understand everything? How do I speak rightly? How do I do the right things? Buddha, how do I do that? Do it. Just do it. Then we read, Our holy and righteous God requires perfection to enter into His presence. Great. How do I do that? Too late for me. Too late for you. Unless God has made a way of reconciliation. You know, maybe on some trivial points we're okay, but at the heart, all other religions are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no gospel. No grace. It's only human merit by those who adhere to their religion and hope at the end it's good enough. Well, for us, the wonder of the gospel is we're being reconciled through the righteousness of Christ. The perfection of Christ is being put into the account of all who will believe in Him. And those who believe in Him have been given this gift of faith. The same faith that was given to believers of all time. And that's what First Peter 1, 1 and 1, 2 is about. This gospel of Jesus Christ, the wonder of the gospel. We no longer regard people according to the flesh, the worldly estimation. We see them as sheep without a shepherd. In a crowd, or when we meet people, we wonder or we ask them if they're Christians, if they know Christ. Why are we thinking so differently about others and about ourselves and about the Lord Jesus? Though we once regarded Christ, Paul says, according to the flesh no more, 
Well, it's because of the righteousness of Christ. And the power of the Spirit has given us a new heart. And now we stand before God blameless and holy. And we have the power to think rightly and to understand things that we couldn't understand before because the natural man can't understand the things of God. We've been given the ability to speak rightly. That's the grace of God. We discover what it means to be reconciled to God through the death of His Son. He restores our distortion of vision. Uh, We're upside down. Christ turns us right side up. The world looks at us and says, you're turning the world upside down. Oh no, we're trying to right the world. The world is upside down. We're confusing the world until they understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. He turned our eyes to Christ and we're grateful and we're thankful and we're humbled by that. But then he's also called us to pursue holiness. The mystery, Peter marvels that he's a servant and apostle of Christ. Uh, And he says, I want you guys to share that same faith in Christ the God-given ability to trust in Him that brought us to salvation. And the greatest need, he says there in in verse 2, grace and peace. God's uh, grace to us is He lovingly treats us as He desires rather than treating us as we deserve. And the result of that, of course, comes peace. No peace without grace. Grace is always before precedes peace. And we're made at peace with God. We were enemies of God. Now we're at peace with God in Christ. And then day by day we can, with the Spirit's help, experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. And when you live that way, people won't get it. And so you have opportunity to share that. Why do you do the things you do? Christ enables. And Christ will enable them, will enable you to follow him by his grace and mercy. Trust in the Lord Jesus. We'll stop here. It's time to go. Well, we made it to verse 2 but it's been a journey. Any, any comment, any question, anything anybody want to say? I didn't give you much time to talk. Yes, Lily. We are saved from God, saved from God, for God. Saved from God, by God, for God. Yes. And He provided the sacrifice. He provided the means, the, His only begotten Son. Yes. Thank you. Anyone else? Uh huh. (laughs) Got it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you that for many of us, you've opened our eyes to who we really are 
what we really were and you've put us on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who have not yet come to know Christ, if there be any. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart to understand the gospel, to understand, to know Christ and to know themselves and their need for Christ. Lord, I pray that you would work, bring people to yourself. Lord, empower us Christians, convict us to live pursuing holiness in Jesus' name. Amen.